Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network. So join Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine as they talk with women in compliance who are making a difference. Hi, you're listening to the Great Women in Compliance Podcast on the Compliance Podcast Network. I'm Lisa Fine, and this podcast is hosted by Mary Shirley and I. Uh, we, you can also find us on the Corporate Compliance Insights website and webpage. Today, I am so excited to speak with Frances McLeod, who is a founding partner of Forensic Risk Alliance and head of its U.S. offices. She is an innovator and pioneer in the areas of forensic analysis, data privacy, since the inception of GDPR, and has been a monitor in many, many, many matters, including recently as the IAV monitor and historically for Ferguson City and for Weatherford, among many other SEC and DOJ monitorships. Francis and FRA are also focusing a lot on the area of sanctions as of late. We have so much to cover today. I'm so thrilled that you're here. And Francis, can you tell us a little bit about your background, how you got into forensics, and about founding and growing FRA? Of course. And hi, Lisa. I'm so glad to be here. Um, I actually started off not as an accountant, but in investment banking um, in London and subsequently in the Far East, focused on M&A and corporate finance. And I was then uh, joined an investigations boutique um, to do M&A for them, so to do a sort of roll up. And uh, given that it took a while to identify appropriate targets, I ended up being pulled into some investigative work because of my language skills, because I speak French, German and Chinese. And, and so bit by bit, I cut my teeth on doing a number of investigations, anti-money laundering, usually banking related. And then I got under, I got headhunted to uh, be part of the team undertaking the Swiss bank uh, Nazi gold, Holocaust era investigations, really into dormant assets um, and moved to Switzerland to do that. And that's really the genesis of FRA, because it was on that project that I met my co-founding partner, Greg Mason, who was a database architect uh, and, and data analytics guy. And my background was in banking, in um, investigations and so on. And um, I we worked out that by working collaboratively around the design of the database that was supposed to help identify dormant accounts, uh, it would help to have someone who understood how a Swiss bank worked, who had the relevant language skills, who could help identify appropriate data sets. And so as we worked together over those two and a half years, we saw how well having an integrated team with investigations and sort of technical expertise as well as data analytics worked. Um, And we thought that it would be a really great idea to offer this sort of combined offering to to clients in the marketplace. And so we decided as the project due to a close um, to set up our own company. And along the journey, we brought on board my brother, Toby Duffy, who runs our European offices and is London-based, who was a project finance banker and had significant financial modeling skills. So we thought between the three of our skill sets and our sort of entrepreneurial spirit, it would be an idea to to set something up um, that we could offer services um, that were very technology driven as well um, to to the market as a whole. So from the Holocaust restitution work, which we first picked up when we founded, we then moved more into the wider space. So from the mid to early early 2000s into the anti-corruption arena, and now we help clients manage a wide range of white collar and regulatory compliance challenges. You know, as you mentioned, sanctions, financial crime. Um, recently, you mentioned the IAV monitorship, which is Dieselgate related. And all of this, of course, comes together, um, brings together the need to also be able to address data privacy and transfer issues. What I call 
the geopolitics of data, which was increasingly complicated. Um, so we also advise and, and, and leverage our expertise in that area. I'm going to ask you about that as you're talking about the politics of data and all of the other things that you know, you're doing. You've worked in so many different areas, but one of the ways that you've worked through that common theme was things being fit for purpose. We talked about that a lot in tailoring a program, whether it is data or in a monitorship. You know, how do you develop your approach and how do you come up with what you think is a common theme? Yeah, no, that, that's, I think that's a, a great point. And I'm sure many of the people listening who are struggling with uh, compliance budgets are uh, probably thinking about the same thing. I mean, harking back to, to how we founded and what our ethos was from the beginning when we were very small, um, we were always thinking about how do we provide client-centric uh, solutions that are fit for purpose and how can we take what resources available and allocate that resource um, on behalf of the client to make sure that they are addressing compliance concerns and other risks. So we, you know, historically had always relied heavily on technology to help make up for where we were lacking in terms of headcount. Um, today, that's less of an issue with 230 strong. Um, but we, we basically focus on marrying data governance, data analytics and forensic accounting um, and positioning those skill sets um, to help provide end-to-end -end solutions for our clients. Um, and obviously what the regulators take into consideration, and I know that you'll be very sensitive to this, to this too, is, you know, is, is that fit for purpose solution addressing specific risks that that corporate is, is facing? Um, so what we do is, you know, every, every situation to a degree is unique, but we are able to leverage industry expertise. For example, we've done an enormous amount of work in the oil and gas industry. So we're very sensitive to where their compliance risks lie. And I think we're able to relatively quickly cut to the chase and helping um, our clients calibrate what they need to do to identify and mitigate risk and put controls in place. But equally, um, we always customize our solutions uh, because one company might be more have a more mature compliance program that's already got real-time ongoing monitoring and testing going on. Another they may be more in its infancy or have more resource constraints. So there we would focus more on what controls do you already have in place or how can those be enhanced to help mitigate risk. Um, so maybe it'd be helpful to talk a little bit about some cases where we've we've tailored uh, approach to the specific um, uh, uh, issues at hand, and you, you may have heard that we were involved in the, the Airbus very, very large-scale multi-jurisdictional investigation around anti-corruption issues, which involved French, uh, British and uh, US authorities, as well as other um, bodies in different countries where Airbus had had historical issues. And there we had to look at data transfer and privacy laws, because Airbus is obviously an, an, a, a French a company with sites in Spain and in Germany and France and globally. We also had to find a way to coordinate responses um, to respond to the regulators that might have different areas of focus and how could we do that in a way that helped furnish the forensic accounting information and also the risk mapping exercise we've done in a way that meshed with the council's desires to, to be able to negotiate almost simultaneously with the regulators and then obviously, given the size of Airbus as an organisation, an enormous volume of data and custodians across jurisdictions. So how could we really help the lawyers who are doing the document review and assessing uh, case by case where the issues may have lain really get to the, to the heart of the matter, which is why we also, on the sort of data governance side of that project, relied quite heavily on um, continuous active learning, So, which is a type of quasi-AI which helps um, group and cluster 
like information together, but also helps um, as the algorithms are being applied, they get smarter and smarter as you group like interesting documents together. Um, so that was very much had to be a fit for purpose solution to a massive multi-jurisdictional investigation. Um, then when you're looking at a company like Weatherford, where we were part of the team under a, a hybrid monitorship, which was only 18 months, you know, there you were dealing with a, a relatively highly sophisticated company um, in the in the oil and, and gas um, business, you know, and, and they had invested an enormous amount of money in building up a really impressive compliance team to include having their own uh, forensic accountants on the team that were doing testing and monitoring. Um, but when we arrived at Wonderford, there was still a deal that could be improved. And I think I'm proud to say, I think when we arrived, they were slightly offended that they had had a monitor, and particularly when they'd invested in this very, very impressive and experienced compliance team. I think we came in with a fresh pair of eyes and were able to very quickly and efficiently help them improve their monitoring and testing, help them uh, make more robust their testing of internal compliance controls. Um, we even helped uh, develop some algorithms that they could run across data sets that they were querying. Um, and I think there it was a it was a lighter touch, but a, a very targeted approach that was fit for purpose there, given how much they'd already invested. And then just finally touching on the, chat, the project that I've personally found sort of most gratifying in recent years is uh, the IAV monitorship, where I'm currently serving as the US DOJ appointed compliance monitor. Um, and IAV is a, is a German engineering company um, that was implicated in the Dieselgate emissions scandal. So they essentially um, were working for VW uh, developing um, software, and certain of their employees were involved in um, assisting the creation of the defeat device um, that was at the center of the fraud. And obviously, I'm not an automotive engineer. Um, I have some familiarity with um, environmental regulation, but I'm not an environmental regulatory lawyer. Um, but I'm very proud to say that we came in with our, our, our sort of decades of experience looking at compliance programs, all of which are obviously, for the most part, driven by needing to comply with regulations um, and having to have in place anti-fraud controls. So it's been really intellectually challenging but I think because we came in with such a strong testing and monitoring environment uh, experience and also because we have so much experience at looking at what an effective control looks like we've been able to um, develop um, some really good lenses I think through which to help the company view its obligations um, but also to really be able to help distill how does one address uh, regulated compliance, particularly in an environment which could be quite changed, which is frequently changing? Uh, you know, obviously the, the the scandal du jour is emissions related, but obviously that is going to be a dying issue in the automotive industry. But they need to sort of look at how do they comply with you know new emission standards, but equally, what are they going to do when they get involved in autonomous vehicles and you know compliance and regulatory compliance around that that's going to evolve. So we've been very much focused on looking at what the specific risks lie, looking at how those risks evolve and how to sensitise the compliance team to how to mitigate risks that may still be evolving. And also how to bring into place training of all of these engineers that are going to be making calls, obviously still relying on their compliance team around technical compliance as and when they're doing essentially software development. So a lot of the projects involved are knowledge of how does software development change management occur? What kind of controls can you put in place? 
Um, how do you train highly technical people to identify regulatory and compliance risk? How do you marry up technicians and technical compliance experts with compliance experts? So it's been absolutely fascinating, but I'm, I'm proud to say, obviously, it's still ongoing, uh, that um, it's we've been able to leverage our historical experience um, around uh, controls and, and testing and monitoring and the development of sustainable compliance programs uh, in order to in order to evaluate where the company is and where it needs to go. Interesting about that is the um, I mean the way that you have all of these different competing priorities, um, and as you've been talking about all of the different things, and as as evolving through that, it's not fit for purpose is important. It's also I remember talking about data privacy. You may have eighty problems but only eight of them are the ones that you really need to address and to focus. And it sounds like a lot of what you're doing through the analytics and through the process is helping do that as well. Because I do think in a lot of these situations, no matter how sophisticated the organization or the individuals are, it can start out as pretty overwhelming. Of We have to fix everything. Where do we start? And sometimes you know, outside advisors may you know, give you all the problems without helping to prioritize. It sounds like one of the things to you that's key in your fit for purpose and approach development. Yeah, no, I think I think that's absolutely spot on because it, it's a question of triage in all things, and a question of a question of priority and, and resource. And I think it's been really um, heartening to see, you know, the evolution too in dealings with DOJ and the SEC and and some of the other bodies that we deal with in as they as they get more, and more experience, as they bring more and more cases, as these settlements occur, as these monitorships are, are awarded, and obviously once having a dialogue with them as you're going through the monitorship. Um, journey as well is there there is an awareness there of perfection is nigh on impossible but how do you prioritize what's the appropriate resource to, to to allocate and and what as you say is the risk that is of paramount importance that needs to be addressed and what's that sort of hierarchy of risk and how do you address that in an appropriate fashion and I think that's I mean I know that you will have the same uh, experience in your career as well is that you know compliance officers are constantly having new responsibilities plumped on their plate and new risks they have to mitigate and that triage piece is always just such an important part in terms of you know where do you focus your attention and what do you need to shore up as a as a priority versus what can you can you live with for now you were talking earlier a bit about um, artificial intelligence or a version of AI um, I think that for me is one of the bigger issues that's going to be um, coming out lately and this is a huge topic, but from a practical standpoint, um, if you were going to talk about two or three things that for us as um, compliance professionals or compliance officers to keep in mind, what would you say that those would be as we go into this strange world? I agree. I mean, I think you will all be, you probably, many of you already are on some level, probably using some element of AI. Uh, but I think it's going to be part of all of our lives in the compliance arena, uh, no matter how big or small the organization is. And just to touch back on what I was saying before, you know, in terms of expectations for compliance officers, they have changed rapidly over the past, I'd say, 10 years or so due to the rapidly shifting data and technology landscape. Um, so, you know, your agreement as a compliance officer, I think, is expanding all the time as their new developments and risks. And so you've probably now got a high risk of, you know, data breach and privacy concerns being part of your remit and how to, to address those. Well, certainly as a chief compliance officer, you bound to have somebody in your team that's looking at that and, and probably having interplay with your IT security 
and obviously the legal department around these. So from, to my mind, some of the best uses of AI that we're seeing currently, and we expect to see more of are around proactive compliance. And a good example of, of that is, you know, the ability to proactively monitor cybersecurity threats and data manipulation. Um, there's some really cool software, AI software out there called um, Security Rating Service. And they basically do real-time monitoring of vendors and partners um, security by using algorithms and predictive analytics uh, to turn millions of security data inputs into prioritized lists of security factors and issues of concern. So, you know, a vast majority of data breaches are from third parties penetrating, you know, your environment. So this is kind of a way of alerting that based on being able to chunk through all of these alerts and prioritize the ones that are, are you know, of, of greatest, pose a greatest risk. Um, obviously, the other area, and we touched again on the sanctions thing, is, is you know, AI programs that are able to protect, proactively identify legal breaches and self-reporting obligations to the relevant authorities. And obviously, there are OFAC lists and, you know, the banks and, and many other organizations have to go through, um, you know, the matching processes that, um, that go to sanctions breaches and the need to report. But that being said, um, you know, anything that can help reduce false positives, reduce costs, um, identify human error is going to be incredibly valuable and help save costs as well um, and provide more accurate reporting and increase efficiency. And I think what we're seeing is a lot of investment um, by um, the software development companies that are out there looking at compliance where to try and help some of these issues, particularly around the sort of thorny issue of sanctions, which can generate a lot of false positives, uh, which require manual intervention. I think we're going to see that become more and more efficient. Um, so I think you know that those two those two areas off the top of my head are um, are really valuable. Um, and the other piece about AI as well is obviously it can help bring forward um, the self-reporting piece um, and can and be part of you've got an effective AI uh, piece of software running across your systems. Um, you know that can be part of a a, a defense um, argument in terms of your ability to, or, or your willingness and your ability to identify um, breaches or issues that need to be addressed, you know, as quickly as possible, um, and allowing you to proactively report, monitor potential breaches. Um, the regulators do take that into consideration. Um, so again, um, I think a AI can um, help. Um, AI and machine learning can really help that that ability to assess if and when and how to self-report and and to be able to be part of your sort of defense arguments around what you were trying to do to um, be as compliant as you could. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great, uh, it's a great part of it. Um, changing the topic a little bit, and it's something that I saw that you worked on that and talked about that was really, really interesting to me is working on the city of Ferguson monitorship in the United States. I don't know what you can or can't talk about about that case, but one of the things you talked about there was the importance and the use of data analytics and the recognition of individuals in the community of the importance of that data. Yeah, and and, and this is, a, I think it's, a, it's another example of how um, it's back to your fit for purpose, but also about the power of, of data analytics being leveraged in a variety of different scenarios. And obviously, um, Ferguson was, uh, you know, around the unlawful conduct that the, the police department and the municipal court had undertaken 
um, in um, essentially discriminating against and extorting fines from um, the community, predominantly um, African-American community. Um, and so I was part of the team that was uh, asked um, to be part of the independent monitor team, which was under the leadership of um, Clark Urban at Squire Patton Boggs. And we were supposed to be overseeing the implementation of reforms uh, meant to promote effective policing and to help you know, really bridge the gap and foster greater trust between police officers and the, the community there. And what we were charged with doing was taking the, the police data um, and the court data and analysing how it had been abused, essentially, and where controls could be put into place to ensure that officers were recording information appropriately and equally that the court system was not um, using that data to profile and essentially, you know, be able to target um, sectors of the community. Um, so I we learned a lot about, you know, how a squad car is basically a computer and how that feeds into the systems, how files are, uh, reports are filed, which is all done electronically and equally about um, court data as well. One of the challenges of it, um, frankly, and one of the frustrations was um, a lot of the data was incomplete or had been manipulated. So obviously there was a data integrity issue there as well. You know, and unfortunately, due to the, the timing of uh, the monitorship, um, we ended up, along with the entire team, resigning from it because they, with the change in administration um, and the Trump administration coming in and a lack of focus on these type of human rights uh, matters being brought by DOJ, it sort of ground to halt and, and, and um, you know, cooperation was, was not as it had been. So we felt that we had to, to withdraw from it. Um, but what it did um, do from a sort of personal perspective is obviously there was a, a huge public service element um, it allowed us to really understand some of the challenges the community faces when the police and the court system go rogue. And it, it brought us as a, as a firm back nearly full circle to sort of the human rights redress work that we took when we, we first found it. Um, and the other thing that was the, the best um, takeaway for me was as, as part of the, the, the pitch um, to, you know, be awarded um, the, the monitorship, uh, we had a, we were competing with a variety of different teams, all of mixed discipline, um, and part of that was being interviewed by the community and um, having community representatives and just anybody who lived in Ferguson have the ability to ask questions of the potential monitor team. And I perhaps rather naively thought, well, no one's going to ask me a question because I'm the weird data person, and they're not going to really care about data analytics. They're going to care about the people who know, have an experience of how to police communities effectively. They're going to want to hear from people who, who understand, you know, how uh, how courts should be run. They're going to want to understand, you know, have all of this police department and court system expertise. And the very first question that was asked uh, by this, this elderly lady was, okay, I want to hear from the data lady because we know that the data can give us some answers that people might not want to give us. And it made me, obviously, because I'm a, a data analytics fan, made me very happy um, to see that regardless of the circumstance, regardless of the nature of the monitorship, that the, the victims um, of it, within that community had faith that on some level data analytics would be able to provide them with some truths that maybe they couldn't get to in another way. Um, and, and we were very focused on trying to get to, to, to the crux of that and very focused on working out how we could leverage data 
to help build in controls and enforce compliance of you know of a, of a system that had become corrupted. Yeah, I love I love that story. I mean, I just love that idea because that is really I mean numbers and, and data can't can't lie in the same way as others might. Um, but I just think it's it's just kind of amazing and important the recognition of it and the recognition in a situation that is so human rights focused. Um, and I you know so I just thought that that is really fascinating and also how critically important it was there and in the other uh, things yeah. that we talked about. Um, yeah. So I have one last um, question, some questions for you um, about the ethics and compliance community. It has a lot of women, but there are fewer women in the uh, data analytics and forensic risk areas. Um, so I wanted you to talk a little bit about some of the challenges that you faced um, and then what is, why you think it's such a great area to work in. Absolutely. I mean, I, I have to say, I've been I've been lucky uh, to um, have found some other great women in this space that have been amazingly collegiate and and helpful. But um, you know, starting out as a woman in investment banking in the late '80s, I was used to being the only woman in the room 100% of the time. Um, you know, I started out in a department of 150 professionals, of which four were women. Um, and so, you know, I was used to, to, as I said, being the only woman in the room, I was used to sometimes having clients that were skeptical about my ability to be able to give them advice. Um, and, you know, you, it certainly helps you develop a, a thicker hide. Um, and I think, it, you know, in that era also, it was a question of trying to sort of blend in rather than, um, you know, owning uh, the fact that you were that you were diverse, you did have a different viewpoint. That you you know you were as technically skilled as the men, and that you were just as interested in forensics and data analytics. Um, but I think you know one of the great things about now is I think people are very much um, open to having a sort of female centric approach and, and understanding that um, we are you know have our own styles, our own approaches, but that we are just as technically competent and that we you know are just as good data data jockeys, we're just as good at looking at risk and mitigating risk and working out how controls um, can work and so on. So, um, you know, I think it's, it's been a journey. Um, I, I do my best and I'm very committed to, you know, within FRA and beyond to helping encourage women to see why this is such a great space. And um, we actually have a, a number of initiatives where we send out um, some of our uh, more junior folks to to talk in um, you know high schools and in in, in uh, also to, to frankly also to lawyers and people who are maybe not so data centric about what it is we do and why we do it and why it's interesting and sort of the powerful elements of it so that they can if they don't even do it themselves they can at least understand how to leverage it going forward um, and I mean I think the great thing about looking at this field now is we're seeing more and more women entering the field and rising to leadership positions. Um, and I think part of that trend is, you know, and, and I think you, you Lisa, and, and um, many of the others are, are part of the movement um, in compliance to be collegiate, to support one another, and that the recognition of the need to have forensics and data analytics as part of that compliance environment means that, you know, you, as much as, as people who are the full-on geeks, uh, are around to help develop other women and bring them up through the ranks in these fields, in these areas. Um, and, you know, I'm really passionate about mentoring and ensuring their pathways to success for the talented women in our team. We proactively, um, you know, try and recruit more women and we spend a lot of time investing in their training, in giving them exposure to different types of projects. 
um, to helping them see the broader application of what they do, which is wonderful given the variety of different projects we get to work on. So really giving them exposure to a wide variety of different challenges, some of which may be very IT intensive, some of other which may be much more around problem solving and, and how can you leverage IT and an understanding of controls to do that. Um, and then, you know, on the data governance side, which we touched on a little bit, which is around the, sort of the data transfer and, and data privacy piece, um, I'm really proud to say that our team is pretty unique because we've got entirely female leadership, um, myself and my co-head, Britt Enderman, and um, we're very focused on giving women opportunities to develop their technical skills and um, forging career paths for them in technology. Um, and we're also really heavily female-led on the forensic accounting side. And it's been really a revelation over the past few years to hear about the excitement that our clients express when they discover we're a woman-led team because they're trying to diversify their own teams. They have diversified, uh, they have mandates to uh, demonstrate diversity in who they engage as their advisors. So it feels much more supportive and collaborative, but also not just from other women, but from the industry as a whole around uh, wanting to see more women in this in this space and also really appreciating the value around forensics and data analytics that can be uh, in a compliant context. And one of the other things that I noticed too about your team is not only are you, you know, have you so many women I mean, on your website and others, but I, you really, are, you all very much have a commitment to diversity as a whole. And that is one thing that while we in podcasting in the community are supportive of women, and that's sort of our core audience, for us just to be able to see that and to be able to look and see that that's a commitment is also a really impressive, impressive and appreciated thing, um, having looked at your website and seeing that you have a, a committed to lots of different areas in diversity too and growth in, it, in an area that isn't traditionally as diverse. Yeah, and it's something we're very focused on. And, and to be honest, it's been, a, it's been a, a recruitment tool because I think a lot of people are looking for that. Um, and a lot of our clients, too, because, I mean, in the space that we're in, in the same as you, Lisa, you know, we we operate all over the world uh, in all kinds of different environments. And the more that we can look as, as diverse and, um, you know, as the, as the whole world does, uh, the better. I think it brings, you know, cultural sensitivity. It brings an ability to, to be compassionate about issues and problems. Uh, which our clients say face um, and, and which we, you know, re, it's something that we are incredibly committed to. And, and I'm very excited. We launched a diversity and inclusion initiative uh, a few months ago and uh, engaging in a lot of pro bono work in that space. And it's the people, people in the firm bring the same rigor and passion and really wonderful quality of work to that initiative um, than they do to, you know, all of their professional endeavours. So I think I really feel that we're, as a, as a firm, collectively incredibly engaged on, on delivering on all fronts on the diversity, diversity side. And it's something we, we remain committed to. I just wanted to also say before we close, I thank you so much for taking the time with me. It's so one of the best parts of the podcast is getting to meet interesting women in all different parts of the field. Um, also, someone like you. And I just have to ask, how many languages do you now speak before we uh, leave the podcast? Because I just I think last time I, I read you were learning Icelandic. I'm not sure uh, if that's yeah, still so the case, that but. That, that, that is still the case. Um, and it's, it's a bit of a cheat because it's similar to German, although the pronunciation is really difficult and they speak really hard. So I'm very much nascent on that. But I speak French, German, English and Chinese and a little bit of a little bit of Bahasa Indonesia. 
Yeah. Wow. I just, you know, that, that's, that's amazing. And I just wanted to again, say how much I appreciate your time and thank you so much. Um, and on behalf of Mary and me and the compliance podcast network, thanks so much for joining us on great women in compliance. Thank you so much, Lisa. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for joining us for this episode of great women in compliance. We hope you'll join us in honoring the great women in the compliance field by subscribing to this podcast and leaving a review.